Hi, and welcome to The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Leslie Block and Zoe Bisbing, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two. Here to help you help your children fully bloom. Today's episode is brought to you by the letter H for healthy. To gain access to the virtual guide to this episode, please subscribe to the Full Bloom Project mailing list at fullbloomproject.com. So Zoe, what is the definition of the word healthy? According to the American Heritage Dictionary, the word healthy is defined as follows. One, possessing good health, as in a healthy child. Two, conducive to good health, healthful, as in healthy air. Three, indicative of sound rational thinking or frame of mind as in a healthy attitude. Four, sizable, considerable, as in healthy portion of peas, a healthy raise in salary. Seems pretty straightforward, right? Hardly. This little word is one of the most controversial and difficult words to define when it comes to conversations about lifestyle, exercise, and most of all, food. Many well-meaning parents are interested in optimizing their family's health and are drawn towards diet culture's skewed and potentially hazardous definition of what healthy feeding looks like. We can't tell you how many kids and adults land in our offices after attempts to eat healthier or adopt a healthier lifestyle went awry. To set the record straight and offer you a body-positive definition of this tricky little word, we went directly to the Ellen Satter Institute, the internationally recognized authority on feeding and eating, where we found Jennifer Harris, a registered and licensed dietitian with decades of varied clinical experience. We are thrilled she's here to teach us a bit about the highly protective Satter Eating Competence and Feeding Dynamics models and help us get to the bottom of what healthy really means. Jennifer, welcome to the Full Bloom Project. Thank you very much. Thank you for the introduction. Well, we're Jennifer, we're thrilled to have you here. And as Leslie mentioned, we're here trying to understand what healthy really means and hope you could start us off by just telling us a little bit about your process helping parents with feeding their children through the Ellen Satter Institute and the models? Sure, I can. Um, Briefly, and you touched upon it a a little bit, my first exposure was in 1996. And the reason I connected with Ellen Satter and some of her learning opportunities was that I found myself working in the area of eating disorders. And I felt like I needed firm grounding to understand what normal is before I could even begin to understand disorder and tease that apart and, and help people get back to whatever their normal is. And, and it's important to know that because normal, there's a very broad range of normal. 
versus disorder. And I, I think I, I try to be really careful not to pathologize, you know, varying levels of normal. So I, I, I really let that model roll around in my head for a while and began really working it into my practice because I saw so much conflict and anxiety uh, in children I worked with and the parents who were feeding them. And I think that's a natural unintended consequence of some of our, our policy today with uh, such a strong emphasis on what uh, we should be eating for optimum health. And unfortunately, we completely ignore the how to feed and eat for optimum health. So I think this model is a perfect companion to our focusing on what to feed and eat. And actually, it's time for us to look more closely at that and start incorporating that into our recommendations. So you've mentioned and we've mentioned this thing called the SATR models. And I'm wondering what our listeners should know about them if they are, you know, this is their first introduction to them and how they are protective. So could you tell us a little bit about about that? I'd love to. The premise of the the SATR models is pursuing what Ellen Satter has defined as eating competence. And eating competence has four domains to it by definition, and those include positive eating attitudes. So people feel good about eating, and they feel good about feeling good. So it's not the euphoria of eating something forbidden and then the loathing that you ate something forbidden. It's really just enjoying gathering, um, enjoying food and and all the rituals uh, and traditions around it. And then there's food acceptance skills. And that's the skills of learning to like new food. And that really is the essence of nutritional excellence because strong food acceptance skills lend themselves to increasing variety in the diet. The third domain is internal regulation, which is really the ability to trust our inner process of knowing how much to eat to promote, like in children, stable growth and body weight that's consistent with their genetic disposition. The models avoid interference with that process because we trust children and adults to do that, that they have that inner capability. And then contextual skills is the last domain. And that includes the skills and resources to be able to pull together meals and snacks in a fairly thoughtful and planful way. And what we found is that adults who are eating competent have uh, experienced those health benefits. And so I think the models are protective for adults in terms of health. And we do have a way to assess whether people are eating competent through a screening tool called the Eating Competent Satter Inventory 2.0. And it's fascinating because this questionnaire is just 16 questions, and none of the questions really talk about the what people are eating. It's really around the behaviors. And people who are eating competent have improved sleep patterns. They have improved body esteem. They tend to be more physically active. They have a higher nutritional quality of their diet. And they have stable or lower BMIs. And they have healthier or lower biomarkers, especially some of the uh, cardiac biomarkers when we take blood labs and samples. So it's fascinating to me because this is all about how we feed and eat. 
versus what. And I think those are pretty great outcomes. And it also really doesn't promote any conflict and anxiety around eating. It really gets to a healthy relationship with food. So the social emotional benefits are great as well. You know, I'm a pretty big fan of the models in my work because by the time someone gets to see me, they are very expert in the food itself, but there's still so much distortion. And so this is really the other half of the equation. And the the models are protective for children, I have found, because the core principle for adults who feed their children is the division of responsibility in feeding. And I have found this can offer so much clarity for adults who feed children. And basically, in essence, it just uh, helps us with our boundaries. It helps us know where our job ends and the child's job begins. Adults are in charge of what is offered to children, where it's offered, and when it's offered. And the child is in charge of what they eat from the foods that are offered and how much they eat of that food and even whether they eat it at all. And I think the parents I work with find that so clarifying because they can get so worried and concerned and have the best intentions around their child's nutritional health. But really, they are doing a lot of work by taking leadership with feeding, by just following the division of responsibility. And then they're allowing their child to do their work because they are, there's a lot of work there. They are learning, learning, learning. Food acceptance skills, internal regulation, feeling positive about eating and how to behave at meals and enjoy time with their family. So I just, I love the models for that reason. And, and I think it protects children from any distortions and it allows them to grow up, to have the body that nature intended. So that's really important for kids to really be free of conflict and anxiety around those issues. And they rely on their adults to do their job so they can do theirs. So it sounds like in order for this model to be effective, a parent really does need to trust that their child will be able to kind of do their end of it. Like if the parent is providing the structure around the what and the when and the... And where. When and where. But that the parent also has to trust that whatever body that child is meant to have, it will have, as opposed to trying to kind of ensure that the child has a certain type of body, but rather the body that they're genetically predisposed to. That's, that's right. And that's why we call it the trust-based model. And that's why eating competent adults do well with the division of responsibility and feeding because they have that trust. It, it can be a little more challenging for adults who really don't have that trust themselves. So it's, it's much easier for an eating competent adult to raise an eating competent child. But that's not to say that if, a, if an adult is struggling a bit, that the models won't offer clarity and actually help the adult bring themselves along towards eating competent as well. Ellen has a wonderful quote that I saw recently that says, start in the room that you're in and build the house around it. And I love that because if you work on one area of eating competence, you're, you're going to be working on other areas. They really don't exist um, independent of one another. They, they really work together. And so 
I kind of give you the perspective of my clinical work, which is eating disorders. And I found that parents who struggle on their own or maybe have a history of their own and are, and are really worried about doing the right thing for their children really do well with this model. I mean, it can be stressful for them because they, they're still believing it themselves, but they, it offers, like I said, that clarity. It just really kind of keeps it clean and eliminates static and conflict around, around feeding. Now, there's more to the models besides the division of responsibility. That's really foundational. But there are all kinds of things parents do to support feeding the child, and that's called feeding dynamic satyr. And so we feeding is parenting, and so it, it's not for fluffies, right? You know, it's quite a lot of work. Feeding dynamic satyr means a real firm commitment to structure and routine. Um, that is foundational for all of the work. And that means weekends and days off, you know, a firm commitment to planned meals and snacks, because that's how the child learns internal regulation. The child learns how to come to the table hungry. The child's more likely to be curious and accepting of new foods. The parents do careful menu planning by offering familiar foods with unfamiliar foods so the child can do their work with food acceptance. So there's lots of other ins and outs besides a division of responsibility to support that child grow up, growing up into eating competence. And really, as a result, if the parent isn't, they are definitely going to bring themselves along too. So I kind of see the model as uh, pretty win-win all around. You know, and I, I wanted to um, kind of pounce when I heard you use the word clean, because you were using the word clean to describe this model, which really is clear and clean and uh useful because of it. But I think because here we are talking about what does healthy really mean, I hear the word clean and I think a lot about how focused people can be on eating clean and having their children eat clean and how clean can sometimes be mistaken for healthy or is the new word for healthy. And so as we think a little bit about the what that goes on the plate, the responsibility that the parents have, mm -hmm. um, what does feeding healthy really mean? Well, I, I think feeding is a behavior and um, people can have nutritional health. We know this from the eating competence tool without focusing a lot on the right and wrong foods. My preference for children, for sure, and, and adults is to work on structure and routine and get that feeding relationship going. Getting too bogged down in food rules is a barrier to structured routine and getting meals on the table. We have research that says that families know that they should have family meals and eat together, but they don't if they can't pull off the perfect family meal. And that's why specifically with the division of responsibility, it talks about offer meals and snacks, and it's not offer healthy meals and snacks. That's actually strictly incorrect for the sadder models, because healthy is a barrier for families to get the meal on the table. And we need to support parents as they provide leadership uh, for their children by accepting the food that they're able to provide. And the structure and routine will offer opportunities for them to start themselves thinking about other ways to offer a certain food or another other food to include 
this food we've been having is getting kind of old. You know, it, they really do bring themselves along into, into um, the essence of positive nutritional behavior in terms of um, increasing variety of food. So for that reason, I mean, we expressly avoid the word healthy. For one, as you say, it's taken on so many connotations, it's kind of hard to know what it is for any one person. But the benefits of the structure and routine are so great that we really don't want to uh, add a barrier to that happening. In fact, children who have family meals have enormous social-emotional benefits, including um, improved academic performance, decreased early sexual behavior, decreased incidence of alcohol and chemical use. They have lower or stable body mass index. You know, the benefits of the family meal, regardless of what is served, are so great physically and socially, emotionally, that we don't want to put any kind of barrier in there because we think things will come along and they, and they do without um, bogging parents down with that requirement. But I like it because, you know, a lot of people might say, oh, well, I'm going to focus on making sure my kids have enough fiber and eat a plant-based diet and that's healthy. And then you're not saying, no, it's not fiber and plant-based is not healthy. You're not saying that, but rather you're saying to achieve health, focus on getting the food on the table in a structured way where you can gather as a family. And then regardless of what you're serving, your child will be healthier and will, will be able to enjoy a wide variety of nutrition that may very well include high fiber and plant-based things, but right. not exclusively. I mean, it's almost like it's not excluding other people's definitions of healthy, but it's including them in a, in a healthier way, if you will. Yes. And I, and I think another way to say that is oftentimes we put the horse before the cart, you know, I mean, if you really have the foundational aspect in order, the other happens as a result. So, so eating competent people don't eat, let's say classically, traditionally healthy foods because they have to, they eat them because they've allowed themselves plenty of opportunities to learn to like them and they truly enjoy them. And, and that's a much better place to operate or let's say more satisfying place to operate from than trying to keep up with food rules or the latest research. And, you know, I mean, nutrition is a science, so it's always changing. It gets kind of exhausting to keep up with that. And let's be honest, eating broccoli for all your meals every day isn't healthy. You know, so it, it, so that's not exactly the end of the story either. People kind of comfort themselves with focusing on, on the food virtue, mm. but really kind of ignore the other behaviors that foster true health and wellness. What ends up... Um happening with the clients that I see in my private practice, which are all eating disordered clients, is often that, that there's a hyper-focus on one aspect of the feeding experience, which is usually kind of some element of the content of the food itself, versus the whole experience. And much of the whole experience has been completely marginalized and is extremely unsatisfying and that's where that kind of pathology arrives you know or, or, or lives but what I wanted to hit on and kind of ask because it's just one of those one of our questions here at the full bloom project which is 
what is that one thing, you know, that busy parents um, could walk away with that you'd want them to walk away with from listening to this podcast that would really help their children fully bloom? I think a, a big takeaway would be to try to bring the family back to the table and, and feed in a, in a way that doesn't promote conflict and anxiety around food, meaning the, the meals are not stressful. There's conversation that doesn't include the virtues of food. The home is, is kind of an oasis and, and protective. And that allows the child to develop a healthy relationship with food and positive body esteem, like we've seen uh, with people who test eating competence. So, I mean, that is a body positive initiative for sure. And also, I would say avoiding negative body talk in the home. You know, children who are told either directly or indirectly that they're overweight or fat feel flawed in, in all ways, including lower body esteem, lowered cognitive ability, and lowered perceived physical ability. So, you know, they need to really be free from that and, and have an environment that they can do their learning for themselves. And the meal is foundational to that. And remember the caveat to the meal, which means don't get bogged down in the rules. There are benefits to the meal regardless of what's served. And even there are benefits to the meal regardless who's who's home or where you sit, you know, on the floor. Just as long as you're together and eating the same food with one or two family members, it's, it's huge, as I talked about. So I, I think that would be my real firm recommendation that way. I really love the invitation to think about gathering and sharing food as healthy. We brought you on to try to help us define this word and we get a dietitian on to try to help us define what does healthy feeding healthy really mean. And I'm delighted that the response is it's behavioral. It's the way you're relating to each other around food. It's heartwarming to hear. Well, and I believe it. (laughs) Well, it sounds like in addition to believing it, there's a lot of research that supports, you know, the work that you're doing and the Saturn models. And that's something that we'll be sharing with our listeners, too, who need that in order to move forward with taking this recommendation. Right. That the family meal is, is healthier than kale. And um, don't get bogged down in, in don't not do a family meal because you're concerned about what's the healthiest. Right. And because through that, you will find nutritional excellence and positive nutritional behavior. So it doesn't really ignore the value of food and nutrition, but it protects us more with some of these wonderful behaviors and rituals that are very nurturing So if someone listening wanted to hear more or learn more about the models, where would you point them to first? I would definitely point them to the Ellen Satter Institute website, which is ellensatterinstitute.org. It's a very comprehensive website, but there are pull-down menus for either professionals, public, and parents. And so if you just kind of target what your curiosity is and what your role is that you're exploring. There's lots of information. The one thing about Ellen Satter is, and I know that you value research 
behind this podcast is that Ellen is very research-based. And so every article has citations. So it's written in a way that's very easy to read for the public, but it also appeals to professionals with the pressures of needing to prove what you say or being evidence-based. So I, I think it's just a wonderful resource. We have learning opportunities for parents in terms of webinars and books. We have learning opportunities for professionals in terms of webinars, live trainings, and speaking opportunities. So I'd go there. It's loaded. Great. We'll make sure to make that easy for our listeners. And I think that's our show. That's H. I really appreciate you coming on to school us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate the opportunity. So that's our show. We wholeheartedly agree with Jennifer that how we feed our children is far more important to their physical, emotional, and mental health than what we feed them. And we love that there is research to back up the sentiment. Ellen Satter's models are incredibly user-friendly and will allow you to set the stage for your child to remain or return to being a connected and competent eater. Over the course of this season, we will continue to discuss ways you can promote body positivity through feeding. But until then, we just hope you'll reflect a little about this potentially very new way of thinking about healthy eating. Think about what definitions you've been carrying around and ask your kids what they think healthy eating means. See if you can get a conversation going with your partner or caregiver or maybe even your school's PTA. Let us know what comes up and follow us on Instagram for more content dedicated to this very topic. The virtual guide to this episode is available exclusively for all Full Bloom Project mailing list subscribers. So be sure to sign up at fullbloomproject.com if you haven't already. And tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom.